Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. I'm Commander Shepard, and this is my favorite lore cast on the Citadel. Welcome to the Mass Effect Lorecast, the podcast where we explore the vast universe of lore behind the Mass Effect games. We'll talk about all the details you may have missed, ask the hard questions, and more. Spectres, welcome back to the Mass Effect Lorecast. This is your host, Tom, or Robots, and I'm here with N7... The Legend, for our 51st episode, this is the end of our first year of podcast. This is not the end of the show. <laughs> this is the end of the first year of podcast. This is the last episode of year one. We are on the precipice of a brand new year. Sam, how does it feel? Uh, it feels surreal. It really does. You know, 51 episodes. Wow. It already has me looking to the future and thinking about episode 100. Right. Wow. You're just like doubling up the numbers already. I am. I'm I'm all in. Um, What is episode 100 going to be? Let's just off the top of your head. It's, that's the greatest hits. Greatest hits of the Lorecast episode. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Right. We, 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 we look back, we take our, our best gags, uh, <laughs> okay. we compile them into a uh, into one of those episodes. I was hoping we would just be Danny DeVolis. That's our Danny DeVolis episode. It's a series of terrible accents is, is episode our, number 100. It's our best ep- accents episode. Best and worst accents compilation. It'll be like one of those old sitcom episodes where because they were like running out of budget, they just did like, uh, hey, remember this time this happened? And it's just clips from all the old episodes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like one of those. <laughs> yeah. Family Guy does that as, as kind of like a like a gag almost on their own viewers. Um, and <laughs> so, yeah, I kind of got the idea there. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So we were talking about the uh, the Citadel and the uh, council on the last episode. What are we talking about today? Right. Well, uh, so just as kind of a recap, in, in case someone's tuning into this episode, they, they didn't catch the last episode. Um, well, number one, go back and listen to it. Number two, <laughs> in, case, in case you haven't. Um, the formation of the Citadel Council is an event that 
has an impact for thousands of years to come after that. And it forever changes the Milky Way in the current cycle uh, in the Mass Effect universe. It is probably uh, not unique. It probably happened that way in previous cycles. Uh, it happened that way for the Protheans, probably the Inner Sanon as well. Um, and yet there is this level, even though they've had thousands of years to kind of uh, form this council, this this overarching governmental body uh, that's based on cooperation, even though they've had that, there is this certain level of vagary to their authority. It's not well-defined. And they are also pretty exclusive of the other alien races. You know, there's like something like 10 or, or, or 15. I can't even remember now. It took us like 17 weeks to alone to get through the races of Mass Effect. Right. Yeah, yeah. A bunch. Um, and, and yet there's only three. There's only three races represented as Citadel counselors in the beginning of Mass Effect 1. Uh, when we get there, four at the end of Mass Effect 1 with humanity. Um, and so there is this exclusivity uh, element to it as well. Yeah. So you said last episode that we would get more into the history of their decisions. So where do we start with that? Yes. Uh, so about a year ago, we discussed the Rachni Wars and the Krogan Rebellions. Uh, those were some of our earliest episodes. I think those were the second and third episodes. And so these are two huge conflicts enormous conflicts with massive ramifications for the rest of the lore in Mass Effect. And there, these are these, these conflicts where the Citadel Council made decisions that would forever impact the Milky Way. Number one, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna recap the events in great depth because we, we already did that. This will be a 12 hour episode. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, we had episode number two, I think, on the Rachni Wars. If you're interested, definitely go back and check that out. I think that we did a pretty good job recapping that. But the point of the matter is that the Rachni are discovered when a, Solar a team of Solarian explorers activates a dormant mass relay. They uncover the system. They go in. They're like, hey, what's here? And turns out it's killer lobster spiders. Crap. Uh, <laughs> Not very again. intelligent ones. Um, and, and so the Rachni end up posing a huge threat to the all of the Milky Way. And it turns out the, that the STG work on the Solarian Special Tasks Group, who we also did an episode on by now. Mm -hmm. And see, you see that now, like the foundational knowledge from which we've already imparted onto, onto the Mass Effect listeners. Um, the more you know. This, this is why I, I have wanted to cover the, these things in the order in which we've covered them. Um, I feel like this is like a professor saying, oh, there's going to be an exam later and it's going to be cumulative, but yeah. <laughs> no exam. Um, <laughs> we could do an exam. You can, we should we have a certification. Exam. We should have a We should have a test that if you pass, then you get officially certified. You get a milk stamp. Milk. Mass Effect lore cast. Milk. Um, You're milk certified. <laughs> got milk. Um, that's so lame. <laughs> we would definitely get sued by the Dairy Association, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's not I spelled the same. It would be legendary. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And I'm going to go with that pun. Um, <laughs> the uh, so the SDG, they uplift the Krogans to use as soldiers for the Citadel Council. This is a very important element. 
They're uplifting the Krogans as soldiers in this war against the Rachni, and they're doing it on behalf of the council. These soldiers are uh, reporting to the council because who else would they report to? They can't report to the Salarian government. They can't report to the Turian hierarchy. Well, number one, because the Turians weren't a member of the Citadel Council yet. They can't uh, they can't report to the Asari Republics. So they have to report to the Citadel Council, Krogan soldiers. Fast forward, the Krogans feel like they have not been rewarded fairly. They have not been appreciated enough for their role, their instrumental role in helping put down the Rachni and the Rachni Wars. And the Krogan, they expand. They're uh, very fast and prolific breeders. So they take over planets with colonizing them very quickly. Then they start to run into some problems because they're colonizing planets that are already colonized. And they refuse. They refuse to leave one of these planets called Lucia. In response, the council orders the specters to, to basically uh, conduct a strike against some of the leading Krogan. Uh, factions and the Krogans don't take kindly to that. So this kicks off the Krogan rebellions. These rebellions last for a long time. They're very bloody. Uh, as part of the rebellions, uh, <laughs> we can we can throw this back a little bit to to, to this episode when I said that they were slamming ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that definitely needs to be on the best of episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, they, the Krogan were slamming ass because they were, they were pissed off. Um, and no, they were slamming asteroids for anyone that wasn't there at the time and doesn't, and doesn't get that joke. I was saying that they were slamming asteroids into planets as weapons, but I didn't say teroids. It was a problem. It was a whole big thing. Um, <laughs> At any rate, the Krogan are not happy. They start using asteroids as weapons on Turian home, like garden planets. <laughs> they start using um, asteroids as weapons. Laughing. <laughs> yeah, kind of like your dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh. Um, okay. All right. <laughs> I have to slamming breathe. ass. Breathing. Good, good comedic throwback from I don't know how many weeks ago. Oh man, um, that was like almost a, that was an early episode. That was, I mean, it was. That was like ten months ago at this point. Yeah. <clears> wow. <throat> um, <laughs> anyway, um, the Krogan uh, are quickly put down by the genophage, the uh, the thing, the, the genetic alteration that is created and researched by the Salarians through the STG and the Turians deploy it. Now, this is a point of contention in the lore, I think, because the Citadel Council has to date remained uh, a little bit absolved of any direct guilt for deploying the genophage, but they invited the Turians on to the council after they did that. <laughs> if you didn't approve of that, I don't think you'd invite them onto the council. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and if I'm getting this timeline a little bit mixed up and they invited them onto the council and then they did it, I mean, they still didn't kick them off the council. The right. Turians very clearly deployed the genophage before the Salarians were ready to use it. The Salarians just wanted a deterrent. The Turians said, screw that, we're doing it. Um, so unless, I, unless, unless they were more than okay with it. 
I think they were like uh, unless publicly they were like, oh, they maybe we didn't tell them to go ahead. But like behind the scenes, they were like, yeah, you guys made the right choice. We just have to save face. I'm thinking that's exactly what it was. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what it seems like anyway. So and at the very baseline, I doubt that the council did not know about it beforehand. And I seriously doubt that they didn't allow it. Um, so the results of the Krogan rebellions, this is where the Citadel Council decision making comes into play, are huge. Uh, first of all, the specters are formed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> big decision second of all uh, there's two huge pieces of legislation that are enacted by the council following the krogan rebellions number one is a piece of legislation which creates something called the council demilitarization enforcement mission okay. very very official yes. right what's that um, mean in layman's terms, this is a micromanaging body around Krogan space to make sure they don't act up again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, All right. It's it's very uh, very condescending, I think, and it and it's uh, very punitive. Think of the Treaty of Versailles and World War One. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a babysitting and, ring around. Them. Yes. Yes. It ensures the Krogan can never become a quote unquote threat again. Uh, but it's based at Pildea station and abbreviated it is CDEM. So uh, CDEMs patrol patrols oversee the entire Krogan DMZ demilitarized zone. This is part of the lore right now that I'm reading from uh, CDEM logs all ships passing through the DMZ and has the right to board and search them at any time and for any reason. This is kind of like, this is unchecked, right? This power yeah. could definitely be abused. Oh, sure. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. And it's also no, super offensive to the Krogan. No protection against search and seizure here whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a big deal. And I think that we would probably see more protests if the Krogan were more civically inclined, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I see in, in chat, uh, Dave Aylade says literally 1984. Yes, 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 1984. Another Orwell reference. Wow, that's two and two episodes. Yeah. Now. Also, I don't know that I would want to be one of the members of the teams that has to uh, board one of the Krogan ships with a bunch of pissed off Krogan that are getting boarded when they don't want to be boarded. <laughs> that's, yeah, you, that's nobody's happy on either side of that equation. Not to mention that it's demeaning. Oh, even yeah. If the Krogan are not doing anything wrong. Right. Because even if they're not doing anything wrong, they're not, they don't want to be boarded for no reason. And they're Krogan. They're going to be super pissed off and super ready to protect their own ships. Because right. they yeah, they're because they're, you know, pissed off that like this is super demeaning and, you know, and they already don't like anyone messing with their business and they already lost the war. And what else do they have to lose? So they're going to push back and some of them are going to be violent about it. And they're freaking Krogan so they can just smash your face in, <laughs> you know? Like. Yeah. And if they react violently, then that's it's going to be used as further justification for further discrimination. Of course. Of course. So like yeah. the whole situation just is totally sucky. Yes. And there was an armistice that was signed at the end of the Krogan rebellions. And under that armistice, the CDEM is responsible for ensuring that the Krogan do not obtain starship mounted weapons at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the penalty for smuggling those is punishable by death by spacing. That's fun. That seems reasonable. Totally. Totally. 
Yeah. Oh, you had a weapon on your ship. Like, and, and by the way, starship mounted weapons, I think, could be construed as anything from like they strapped an M3 Predator or I forget what it's called. M something Predator, the pistol, the basic pistol. Right. They strapped right. it to their hood. That's uh that's a starship mounted weapon. Guess who's getting out the airlock? Right, right. That's like one of those like, you know, like a bad cop scenarios where like they pull you over to search your, sh- your ship and then one of the cops just like sticks a gun on the outside and goes, oh, what do we find here, Krogan? That's a that's a that's a weapon strapped to the outside of your ship. Looks like we need to space everybody. Time to walk the plank. And they're like, yeah, you son of a bitch. You put that there. Oh, yeah, well, prove much. it. Prove it, Krogan. Who's going to trust you? Yeah. Yeah. Who's going to believe you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly offensive. Uh, and this was this is something that was definitely like commissioned by the council. Uh, so this is one of their decisions where uh, if you if you think about why the Krogan have such a chip on their shoulder about the rest of the galaxy come when you meet them in Mass Effect one, this part part of might be part of the reason why, because if, if this is going on all around Tuchanka and, and Krogan DMZ, mm-hmm. why the hell not become a mercenary? Yeah. They think you're breaking the law anyway. Yeah. You know, the Um, one good side to this is that there's probably a Krogan equivalent band equivalent of Rage Against the Machine. And it's just every band. And I bet they're freaking awesome. I bet they're really good. Rage Against the Council. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, they, they have all of these military space, uh, space stations, the CDEM does around Tuchanka. They regulate fuel sales and they manage the shroud, which supposedly keeps Tuchanka's surface within habitable temperatures. Okay. Interesting. So they're yeah. managing a technology which keeps the temperature suitable for life on Tuchanka. Are you telling me that can't be weaponized? Oh, that's totally a you know a power play. Yeah, like you mess with yes, us, definitely. we'll mess with the shroud. And so the 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 legislation that creates this body is just one. That's just one of the two pieces of legislation that I mentioned. The other one, well, you remember last episode we mentioned everything. Uh, oh, uh, we mentioned overarching legal actions taken by the council, most of them with huge impacts. Well, it turns out. A lot of these legal actions have historical reasons behind their choices. And so here's the second of these legislative actions that I was talking about that comes out of the Krogan rebellions. It's called the Citadel Conventions. And the Citadel Conventions are kind of like the Geneva Conventions. They are rules of engagement and they are basically weapon of mass destruction usage treaties. And I want to make a distinction here. They are not non-proliferation treaties. They do not say or pretend to be non-proliferation treaties. They are strictly guidelines for usage on how you can and can't use Mm. WMDs. Mm. Um, And directly taken from the conventions, it says, quote, a WMD causes environmental alteration to a world. A bomb that produces a large crater is not considered a WMD. A bomb that causes nuclear winter is. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. It also states that no group can use WMDs on garden worlds, worlds that have ecosystems that are primed for supporting habitation uh, like Earth, Palavin, Thessia, because those are hardly replaced. It takes millennia, like like actually yeah. like 
tens of thousands, millions of years, maybe sure, uh, sure. to replace those kinds of worlds. But very interesting to note in the uh, Citadel conventions that WMDs are not forbidden on what they deem to be, quote unquote, hostile worlds or in space. Yeah. Guess who lives on a hostile world? Hmm. <laughs> <clears throat> I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, quite, quite the mystery. Um, I found it to be pretty interesting that the codex states that they are they are not forbidden on hostile worlds because that is a subjective qualifier. Yeah, hostile worlds that right. could that could mean any world that doesn't agree with what you're doing. Right. Um, right. So there's a big caveat in there yeah. for the council if they choose to if they choose to. Well, you know what? They probably did this. Uh, it's like they probably put that caveat in there for the usage of the genophage being retroactively justifiable. But that's like designating your enemy a terrorist group. Right. Yeah. Like that's a very easy label to just put on somebody when you want to villainize them. Right. Like yes. what's the definition? That's really foggy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the WMDs that they mention are put into descending tiers of threat level. So number one is the most, the highest threat level. Uh, and at tier one, they have listed quote unquote, large kinetic impactors. So these include asteroids or space debris that can be utilized as weapons. Mm -hmm. And they, they classify them as tier one threats because they are free. They're available. <laughs> they're plentiful everywhere. And rogue groups like rogue states or terrorist organizations these seem to be the weapons of choice for maximum levels of destruction right this is like throwing rocks out of the sky mm-hmm at yeah. incredibly high speeds oh yeah 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 anything anything at a fast enough velocity will convert into a large explosion as it converts yes. from energy to or from matter to energy and you find a big enough asteroid and you're talking about making an entire planet uninhabitable yeah yeah. That is exactly what some of the Krogan do during the rebellions to some of the Turian Garden worlds. And this is why this policy becomes a thing, uh, at least this this uh, tier of threat. And so this is explicitly forbidden. Um, it's also we see it again in the Bring Down the Sky DLC in Mass Effect 1. This is when a Batarian terrorist group led by a Batarian named Balak is threatening to send a, uh, well, not threatening, they're, they're actively working to make it happen, uh, sending asteroid X-57 into a human colony called Terra Nova, New Earth. Mm -hmm. um, and it is the heavily, most heavily populated, populated human colony outside of, of, of Earth, of course. Uh, so it, it would cause unimaginable damage. Uh, it would it would literally like wreck the entire planet. And so that's just the first tier. The second tier is, quote unquote, uncontrolled self-replication weapons, which can include nanotechnology, bioweapons or computer viruses. So pretty interesting that they could consider a WMD to be a computer virus. And they consider these to be the second highest threat level because the, the danger is they can lie dormant for a long time and then picked up and people can transport them without ever knowing that they're that, that they're doing this. Yeah, well, it makes like, sense. A uh, technologically advanced civilization that could be completely crippled by a danger, dangerous enough virus. I mean, like a, a bioweapon could destroy large swaths of the population, but a dangerous enough computer virus could completely tank your economy. And then that would oh, yeah. that would cause people to starve to death. So they're both extremely dangerous.
yeah, widespread destruction could come from either one. Yeah. Um, tier three are the large energy burst weapons that we probably think of when we think of WMDs, so nukes, uh, but they, it also includes antimatter warheads. Tier four, this was interesting to me, invasive species. Mm -hmm. that have been quote unquote deliberately introduced to edge out a species by making their own world uninhabitable yeah that seems very nefarious you take a species <laughs> for not supposed to be on the planet knowing that it will destroy the ecosystem so yeah you and i both know that sometimes laws are written to be as vague as possible but they're pointed yeah. Like, yeah. like the vague, the vague phrases are written for a point. And when I think of the Citadel conventions being written in the wake of the Krogan rebellions, and then they are writing this specific clause that they consider an invasive species deliberately introduced to a world. I think that they're classifying the Krogan as invasive species. Yeah, they could be. Yeah because they proliferate very quickly. Mm -hmm. They can edge out the existing uh, colonists. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's pretty genius what they've done here. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and it, it kind of goes over everyone's head in Mass Effect, because if we're being honest, how many of us actually open this up and check out the exact clauses of the Citadel conventions in this game? Sure, sure. Right. It's it's yeah. not it's, something that we normally do. It's why we have a um, podcast, because then people will listen to us talk about it and they'll be like, oh, that's in there. And that's what that means. Oh, yeah. This was totally news to me. So that, that's the Citadel conventions. That's the other legislative action that the Citadel Council takes in the wake of the Krogan rebellions. And I don't think that I really need to state again how impactful all of those clauses would be, especially because they can be politically weaponized. Uh, and I'm sure they are for thousands of years. So no wonder the Krogan have a chip on their shoulder about it. The other one that we mentioned, the Rachni Wars, well, there is a, a, a galactic law against activating dormant mass relays <laughs> because of the Salarian exploration team activating a dormant mass relay mm -hmm. and finding a hostile lobster bug species and that <laughs> whole mess. Right. Um, Right. So no more activating dormant mass relays that we don't know where they go. <laughs> that's that's the law. Uh, makes sense. Logical conclusion. And humanity doesn't know this. Uh, not not at the time that they activate the Charon mass relay mm -hmm. to exit the solar system. Right. Now, this but leads there's to no way they could have known. So no, no, they couldn't have known that. And mm -hmm. I think the Asari and Salarians are understanding of that. But that understanding only comes after the first contact war or mm -hmm. what Turians refer to as the Relay 314 incident. Um, and, and so it's um, that we don't need to recap that. I think that was the very first episode or second. That's the second episode that we did. That one tensions escalate very quickly. Not that many people die in the grand scheme of things, but it sets the stage for humanity to be distrusted and humanity to distrust the Turians at the very least. Mm -hmm. Although nothing required the Turians to respond as harshly as they did. You know, like like we mentioned before, they were blown up entire city blocks to take out single strike teams of Marines. Right. Classic, you know, overreact overwhelming force from the Turians. Another example of the Citadel's uh, legislative making ability where they pass this thing that, that really has this profound impact on the rest of the series. They have a strict ban on making artificial intelligence because of the danger it can pose to society. 
The Corians and the Geth, of course, the Corians create the Geth and then the Geth rebel. And we also had an episode on that. I believe that's in the first 10 episodes. <laughs> um, this episode is just going to be me referring people back to like, <laughs> go, go back, <laughs> listen to the other yeah. happy one year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this band existed before the Corians created the Geth, and they were aware that they were tiptoeing and possibly breaking Citadel law as the Geth gained sentience. And the Corians were quite well aware of the po- the threat that that posed to not just the immediate threat of, 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 of them being overtaken by the AI that they've created, but also the political threat of being ostracized. Um, and that we see this we see this uh this strict ban on ai from the council being referenced again in mass effect revelation the book um that is the one that that is a prequel to mass effect one it takes place directly beforehand and more or less the citadel finds out courtesy of their specter Saren arterius that humanity had been researching artificial intelligence on one of the alliance's research stations on planet sidon uh great story in that book can't recommend it enough not going to go into that one too much more until we cover the external media but that's another one of the examples where the council has these very far-reaching legislative abilities they don't need you know they don't need uh, permission from the individual species governments to make these things apparently hmm. interesting interesting in, in indeed i feel like this is a law lesson right now um <laughs> and, and we're not done yet uh but i saw in chat here uh that uh one of our our viewers uh de musica had said the treaty of Phyrixen, and this is this is relevant because the Corians are intricately involved in this at some point in the story um well, this is the Treaty of Phyrixen. If it doesn't sound familiar to you, don't feel bad. This is a very little known piece of binding legislation that, again, comes from the Citadel Council. But it's a big deal on the Milky Way because it's a treaty that limits council races, meaning those who are on the council or those who have an embassy. So it limits them from how powerful their navy can be. It is effectively a way to ensure that the Turians remain the big dog on the block, the peacekeeping force. I'm not sure exactly when it was originally pinned. I'm certain that it was written before humanity entered the galactic stage, but it is an agreement that every council race has to sign. Yeah, I remember you talking about this before, and I'm very interested to get into the details, but we do have to take a break. Got to do the mid break and we've got a review and a planet card. So we're going to go do that and we'll be right back. I am so excited about our sponsor this week, Marvel Strike Force. I freaking love Marvel Comics. Growing up, I collected comics and the trading cards, and I've seen pretty much every Marvel movie they've made so far. So if you're into Marvel like I am, go check out Marvel Strike Force. This is a mobile squad RPG. You can collect and unlock all the different heroes. You fight against supervillains. There's a campaign. There's a blitz mode. There's an arena. There's a constantly evolving meta. And right now, they're celebrating the Deadpool anniversary event. This is a mission 
from Strike, where you log in the first time and you unlock this generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, a bunch of other items. It is absolutely the right time to jump in and try this game out. Click the link in the show notes to download it now and then use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L, MAXPOOL. Don't miss out on all the free stuff and thanks again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Do you have that one piece of clothing you keep going back to no matter how full your closet is? Having a versatile, high-quality favorite feels great, but having a whole closet of them feels even better. American Giant puts the quality, durability, and comfort they're famous for into everything you need for your spring days. From premium t-shirts and jeans to lightweight French terry joggers and their legendary best hoodie ever. Whether you're dressing for work, the gym, or happy hour, you're sure to find your next closet go-to from American Giant. And it's all made in America and designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's American-Giant.com, code staple two zero. Message coming in. Patching it through. I am sovereign, and this station is mine. I like the sound of that. All right, here we are in the middle of the show, and on these episodes, we read out the reviews, if we have any, and so thank you to Ashley12 for leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is a place where if you do leave us a five-star review with some words, we'll read it out on a future episode of the show. This one says, very well done, robot. Well, thank you, Ashley12. Um, I enjoy listening to the Mass Effect podcast and the Mass Effect and the Elder Scrolls podcast. I'm sorry. I read. I was going to read the same thing twice. That's silly of me. Uh, thank you. I'm glad you listened to both of those shows. It gets me through my day at work. And Tom is always positive and upbeat. Well, thank you very much. Um, uh, Ashley 12 didn't say anything about uh, Sam on this, but I'm going to add in. And Sam is devilishly handsome. We'll just pretend that Ash said that as well. So, yeah, he's doing a hand si- a heart sign. You can't see it because it's an audio platform, but there you go. Uh, appreciate the uh, the review. Thank you for doing that. Take the time to do that. Also, if you would like to leave any um, any you can't leave reviews, but ratings on Spotify, you can do that as well. We mentioned on the last podcast that we've now eclipsed 200 on Spotify. Thank you so much for doing that. These very are very, very helpful to help to helping us uh, rank on both of those platforms. And so if you listen on either of those or on anything else that allows you to rate and review the show, it, it helps us out. So thanks so much. And telling your friends is also helpful as well. Sam, we have a, uh, a planet card. Planet card time. Yeah. Ah. Is this one? Is it the name of this one? I'm, I'm looking at it. Is it Tartarus? Tar- it is. Tartar? Tart? Tartarus? Ta- isn't that like Tetris. a Greek myth thing? Uh, it's close. It's Tetris. Oh, uh, oh. Probably too close to be coincidence. Oh, uh, okay. And also, I'm <laughs> feeling some serious Doctor Who vibes. Mm. Uh, but in, 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 in this isn't actually a planet card per se. It is the description of a planet, but it is not a planet card. So, um, 
I did want to throw this in because it is relevant uh, to the episode, and I think everyone will be able to tell. But basically, very briefly, um, here's what it says in the lore. In 2185, Tetris fell into crisis when a Turian separatist group named as name known as Facinus reprogrammed the faster than light plotter of a starship and rammed the ship at near FTL speeds into the heart of Valum, the colony's capital city, killing tens of thousands of people. This terrorist attack prompted the Turian hierarchy and Tetrian colon, col- colonialist forces to invade Facinus's uh, strongholds and systematically eliminate the separatists in a short decisive conflict called the war on Tetris. So uh, that is the uh, description of the planet. And of course, the significance here is that this is a flagrant breach of the Citadel conventions. Yeah, that doesn't seem like something they'd be cool with. No, probably yet another (laughs) reason that the Citadel Council included that as a clause in the Citadel conventions. Like, hey, maybe don't do this to uh, to garden worlds and colonies. Yeah, Uh, please. And thank you cool everybody everyone just be cool out there thanks that's that's what the end of the the document says everyone just also please just be cool thanks council that's the, the final line um but anyway thanks for checking out the middle of the show also hey are you on our, our robots radio discard yet where we all chat about stuff like mass effect if you're not come join us it's easy to find it's in the in the show notes there's a link or you just search robots radio discord or it's on the Robots Radio website, robotsradio.net. Come join us in chat. All right, let's move on with the rest of the show. Spit it out, or are you trying to build suspense? You're so dense, sir. Obviously, I do not know as much about human relationships as I thought. So, about the Treaty of Firaxin, what exactly happens there, and why is that so important? So, at the Firaxin Naval Conference... The council races uh, agreed to a f- to fix a ratio of how many dreadnoughts we can think of them as battleships, uh, how many battleships that any one race could possess because of how much damage that they could do, and at the and we can think of this ratio as uh, the, the the an inverted pyramid. Those at the top are allowed to have the most. Those at the bottom are allowed to have the least. So at the top of this inverted pyramid is the Turian hierarchy. No surprise. Uh, The council would like to keep them as the peacekeeping force. And then the council member races are below them. So that means the Asari and the Salarians. Mm -hmm. The council associate races like the Hanar, the Volus, the uh, Drell, and uh, yeah, like Elcor you name it, uh, they are at the bottom of the list. The people who are not associates of the of this of the council are not on the list. So keep that in mind. So we have a three tier pyramid on these three tiers. The ratio is five to three to one. So for every five dreadnoughts or battleships that the Turians have, the Asarian Salarians can have three and the associate races can have one. Yeah, got it. It is a very strict hierarchy for maintaining the status quo and a couple of interesting things to note here uh from the time that humanity gets an embassy on the citadel to the end of mass effect one and this is a period of about 26 years the human humanity are is bound by this treaty so it means that humanity is qualified as an associate race during this time humanity can only have one 
Dreadnought or Battleship for every five the Turians have. But us humans are crafty, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> we, we know how to get around. Uh, we know we know how to find loopholes. And that is exactly what humanity does. Uh, they get around the stipulations by instead making their navy centered around not dreadnoughts, not battleships, but carriers like aircraft carriers, right. but for space, space carrying carriers. other ships and people. And the Treaty of Frickson does not cap or even address the uh, construction of carriers. So for anyone that is a student of history, this probably sounds very, very familiar. And it's like it, it kind of is like the writers ripped this right out of the history textbooks, because right around the late 1800s and early 1900s, there was this guy, I think his first name was Alfred Mahan, Mahanian naval theory. Mahanian naval theory stipulated that any uh, modern state's navy needed to be centered around big guns on big ships, mm -hmm. battleships, dreadnoughts. Uh, and Mahanian naval theory was quickly disproven after World War One and in World War Two, because the United States was the world's first navy to embrace the aircraft carrier as the centerpiece of a modern navy. And it took off for a couple of reasons. One, there was <laughs> a thing off. called the Sorry. Oh my gosh, I didn't even realize I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> you hit the thrusters on that one. Oh yeah, all systems go. Uh, it took off for a number of, yeah. of reasons. It really propelled One, forward. It, it propelled forward. I don't. <sighs> I don't. I'm too tired to think of more. But well, I wish you could I could. wing it. You know. Oh my god. <laughs> <sighs> I'm glad that you're picking up the slack on on my uh, dad jokes today. It's okay. I'll pilot um, this for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is insane um we'll just you know just get back in the cockpit <laughs> keep going um so the washington navy naval treaty of 1922 was signed by the united states great britain japan france and italy this is real world this isn't mass effect lore um and it was an attempt at maintaining peace and equal power in navy after world war one of course that didn't work out um and it regulated the amount of battleships that, that any standing navy could have so basically was trying to make sure that peace was maintained through equal footing the united states started getting around that by producing a lot of aircraft carriers but they did this for another reason they saw they saw a lot of success with aircraft carriers in the atlantic in world war ii mm -hmm. because they were very effective deterrents against german u-boats uh, right because so, the planes could spot the boats from the air exactly yeah. and there's not much the boats can do against the planes <laughs> right. um yeah so uh, so yeah, that's the, that's the real life naval, uh, equivalent. And so you can see the, the obvious similarities here between the Washington Naval Treaty, Mahanian Naval Theory, and the, uh, dreadnoughts and the Treaty of Frickson. Very, very clear parallels. And the systems alliance basically mimics what the United States military does. So when humanity gets a seat on the council in mass effect we're back to mass effect lore <laughs> when humanity gets a seat on the council after mass effect one then human diplomats argue that they are now on legal footing to build as many dreadnoughts as the asari and the salarians but Man. they still have a 
fuck ton of carriers. Yeah. Man, you really brought us in for a landing on that one. Oh my God. <laughs> that was, uh, let's take a second and just like applaud. Uh, <laughs> uh, Is it easy being the king of dad jokes? Uh, I, I might have eclipsed you on one of the pre- previous episodes. I think I might have gotten a, like one more than you did. You'll, you, you'll catch up though. Don't worry. Don't worry. You really you stuck just, the landing. I mean, yes. thank you. You just, I mean, I know you'll hit that afterburner button on the next episode and then you'll you'll catch up go full full turbo mm-hmm. speed yeah. yeah highway to the um, danger zone buddy <laughs> <laughs> i gotta listen to that song <laughs> um so this uh this now power dynamic where now the human the humans can create just as many dreadnoughts as the asari and solarians probably not welcome news for the for the aliens who were already worried about human ambition and human military might uh at the beginning of mass effect one because they were already worried and now with them being admitted to the council post mass effect one this sets it up for now okay our established peacekeeping force is kind of getting a run for their money humanity already had a lot of carriers proved to be quite useful uh and now they can make more dreadnoughts this is possibly why there are estimates in the mass effect universe that the alliance will overtake the turian hierarchy and military strength within shepherd's generation's lifetime that's notwithstanding the events of the reaper war that's crazy it's crazy to think that humanity hasn't spread to multiple worlds and yet can still construct enough i mean think about these other races they're they're multi-world Races. Oh yeah, well, so is humanity at this point. Humanity yeah. does yeah. have multiple colonies, and yeah. they've spread very quickly. Right, but but they're still like, they're still young when it comes to expanding to these other worlds. You're right; they, oh, yeah. they have expanded like twenty six years, right. one generation, right? One generation. That's I guess that's that's the better point to make. They they have, but like when when I'm talking about one world, they have like one fully developed world with colonies, whereas yes. like the Turians had entire garden planets destroyed by the krogan yeah yeah like they were um, multi they're a multi-world civilization they you know what now that you bring it into it i'm probably i'm thinking that the citadel council might be very worried they could be dealing with another krogan race because i mean think about it like if you are a a race that has multiple planets worth of resources and manpower to build a navy a space navy and yet the humans can match that like does earth have that many resources compared to the average other garden planet like that seems amazing insane right that seems insane <laughs> or the numbers were just really small because for the most part they just didn't need that many battleships like I think part of it was facilitated by the fact that humanity was willing to expand and colonize worlds no one else was with the exception of the Batarians. Yeah, but I'm just so, even just thinking on like a, a like a resources, you know, concept, yeah. like the amount of sure materials, output. like sure output, the amount of materials that would be needed from the planet Earth to make that much, uh, you know, that many ships, the amount of manpower to man those ships, like how many ships do you think are in a, you know, a galactic armada? Like how many battleships do you think the Turians actually have? Like it's a five to three to one ratio. Is that five, 500? Is that five, 5,000? Like, what is that number? 
it could very well just be five um, because I know right. that the, the Volus only have one Dreadnought, the yeah. Dreadnought Quunu. Okay, so maybe maybe the numbers are that small, and in that case, the humans, if let's say they maybe they made twelve carriers, and that was enough to make people go, "Whoa, they've got twelve carriers!" <laughs> you know, like, holy crap, yeah. that's a lot. You know, it's it's likely higher than five, but you know, the the Volus might not be capped at one but they probably just don't have the capability or the desire to make more than one because they're a client race of the right. turians anyway <laughs> they're just kind of um, like okay <laughs> well not they don't talk like that that would be the um the elcor but, yeah. <laughs> but okay <laughs> i can't do a volus voice right now anyway moving on we've, yeah. we've still got a lot to finish on this episode <laughs> i've been a little so, distracting it seems <laughs> sorry well we see a few more instances in the game where this treaty of Ferguson plays a commanding role in interspecies politics uh real quick you know if shepherd chooses to leave the council to die in mass effect one then in mass effect two we hear reports that turians are willfully leaving the treaty of Ferguson and ramping up their shipbuilding anyway uh, so probably some sincere distrust of humanity here because, hey, the human specter just made the call to abandon the abandon the council and, and kill them. Uh, this uh, this rapidly rising military might just forsake our council. You know, maybe we should hedge our bets here. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. And then later in Mass Effect 3, see, this is what uh, De Musica was talking about. In Mass Effect 3, we hear the Corian migrant fleet is strapping salvaged Thanix cannons to their live ships and basically making them into dreadnoughts. But the Admiralty contends that this is not a violation of the treaty because A, live ships are designed for agriculture, but the war means they need to defend themselves. And B, they reference the council stripping them of their embassy. And therefore, they are not a council member or an associate race, so they're not bound to this treaty anyway. Okay, so interesting. So it seems that the council takes a lot of action when it comes to defense and conflict uh, mediation, but what else do they have their hands in? You could say everything. Um, the lore might support that it's not that big of a jump i mean they have committees on on under their authority that research preventable diseases terraforming paleo technology and even finance uh back in the volus episode you know we talked about something called the the unified banking act well because the volus economy was so developed the council deferred to their expertise in creating something called the unified banking act which created the credit currency the standard galactic currency and set up the the economy of the Milky Way as we know it in Mass Effect. The Volus drafted this legislation and the Volus serves as regulators, but it was requisitioned and overseen by the Citadel Council. So they have wide ranging fiscal policy uh, powers as well mm -hmm. because they're rewriting the entire galactic economy here. Yeah. And it is an opt in system. But if you're not opting in, if you're not participating, then you're probably missing out on a ton. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, according to the Lord, the act also laid out regulatory guidelines for determining the value and exchange rate of the credit in relation to the currencies of the individual Citadel member races. So no one here is, is having to get rid of their individual currencies. It means humans with U.S. dollars could purchase something with credits at, quote, fair market value. Okay. So, yeah, so it's not 
it's an opt-in measure where it doesn't appear to have any serious negative repercussion if you opt in. But if you opt out, it makes your life a little harder uh, as a society. And remember, we said the creation of the council was so important. And you remember, you, you, you mentioned time, and I said that we'd get to that. Mm -hmm. Well, we're getting to that. The Milky Way species created a new galactic standard calendar with its formation as year zero. Right. But they also did that with time measurement. Yeah, so how so, does this work? If you've ever wondered about how races communicate effectively about like, hey, uh, little Therex, why don't we meet up at the bar at, you know, 70 blur o'clock? Yeah, is that 70 blur o'clock my, my planet or your planet? <laughs> which time right. zone? On which planet? Yeah. Exactly, because not all worlds have the same length of daytime. Not sure. all worlds revolve the same speed. Um, so... You know, it's this it's this uh, galactic standard time system and it's shared. And here's how it works. A galactic standard day comprises 20 Earth hours. 20 Earth hours. But why Earth? <laughs> e well, this is just a method of translating it for human beings. And so this is part okay. of the codex. Right. And we have to keep in mind that the codex is a general issued handbook to all alliance personnel. Right. Um, so, so exactly 20 earth hours it comes out 20 exactly evenly i'm, I'm guessing so <laughs> one galactic standard day comprises 20 earth hours one hour in galactic standard time is 100 minutes in earth Seems time very convenient that it's, it does it's doesn't it even yeah that it's exact units yeah i know yeah each minute is made up of 100 seconds Mm -hmm. So it's like a metric system for time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, each second is half as long as a human second. So what all of this means, wait, wait, if you don't what? want to do the... <laughs> wait a minute. That's weird. If you don't want to do the calculations, what all of this means is every galactic standard day is about 27 hours, 46 minutes long in Earth time. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I think I misspoke when I said 20 hours comprises 20 hours. That's that's 20 galactic hours. Okay. Yeah. So okay, every yeah, galactic yeah. standard day is 27 hours, 46 minutes long in earth time. So the second is the, is the common denominator. A, a second is the same thing as a half a second in earth yes. time. Okay. So that's the connecting point. Yes. Okay. Um, so this would also mean that every human would be nominally younger in galactic standard time. Yeah. Because each day takes up more hours. Right. That would be weird because humans don't work on a 27, almost 28 hour cycle. Right. It's and I think that there's accounts. We hear accounts of humans having a hard time adjusting to the Citadel when oh, they yeah. get there. Oh, yeah. Reason. People are going to be like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell time is it? I don't know. It says it's 28 o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> I need to go to bed. <laughs> Like, ugh. is it is 28 o'clock the morning or night <laughs> yeah like i don't know i don't know yeah that's super weird they must have like uv lights in some of the rooms on your ships and things <laughs> i think that's actually referenced i know at the very least that it's referenced in mass effect andromeda as uh benefiting the angara because mm -hmm. they rely on ultraviolet light and if they don't get it they become clinically depressed i mean people do too like it's it's part of our main source of vitamin d oh yeah like yeah and scurvy you know, well scurvy is vitamin c right but 
Um, but like, uh, same, same. But like, getting enough light and UV is also has to do with, um, you know, uh, wind. Like, what is it? Seasonal depressive syndrome and all that too. Mm, so, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so okay, so we're getting close to the end. We, but we need to talk about the counselors. Do you think we can squeeze this in? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So you know, we know surprisingly little about who the counselors are. We know their names, we've met them, but it heavily depends on Shepard's actions at the mass at the end of Mass Effect 1. And if the Destiny Ascension, the Citadel Council uh, fleet's flagship is destroyed or not. And it's destroyed, basically, you know, you remember at the end of Mass Effect 1, you get the choice to save the council or not. Mm-hmm. Well, the, if you don't save the council, obviously there's a new council. So the old council, who could be still your council if you just saved the council, who is the Asari member, Tavos. Tavos is known for being a, a very stereotypical mediator, diplomat, level-headed compromiser, but still advocates for Asari space. Her replacement, if she dies, is Irissa, who can kind of come across as cold, less of a diplomat, certainly more blunt, not as willing to take human shit. Imagine that, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the human specter didn't like, uh, didn't like the last council, let you die. I don't think that you're going to be a big fan of him uh, or her. Yeah. And uh, now the Salarian, uh, Valern, Valern is the original uh, Salarian counselor, will still be the counselor if you've chosen to save them. Valern is a big proponent of intelligence gathering before any action is taken. Not a surprise. You remember at the beginning of the last episode, I said the Citadel counselors are basically representative of characteristics that we are supposed to prescribe to each race. Right, right. So Valern is very, very much that way. Uh, Valern's replacement is Sheel, definitely more of a Salarian centric advocate and certainly more of a hardliner, refers to Valern as being weak. So that's about the extent of that. And then interestingly, here's where it kind of differs in the pattern. Uh, the Turian counselor, Spartacus, which is so close to Spartacus, it hurts. Yes. Um, yeah. Spartacus uh, is kind of just a dick <laughs> to Shepard. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and, and definitely isn't a fan of humanity. Uh, Spartacus is and by the way um while we're on the topic of turian counselors we also know that air quotes are canonized in the mass effect universe because the turian counselor uses them but because they have three fingers he just uses his index finger and his thumb um but that is canon that that is that is somehow a uh galactic body body language thing be funny if he was anyway, making fun of uh, humans <laughs> that i you know what i never thought about that but it very well could be a slight against humanity right oh this yeah, thing you guys do <laughs> i don't quite understand it but <laughs> right. yeah we'll do that anyway um interestingly Spartacus's replacement quintius is the only counselor to appear more open to cooperation after the destiny ascension is destroyed. The other two, you know, seem to become more hardliners. So the guy who was a hardliner switches and the other two who seemed a little bit more cooperative switch. Personally, 
I also think that all of them have such little separating them. And ultimately, they're still making the same decisions. They're still the same politicians. Of course, that could be a narrative tool for trying to drive the narrative forward. Mm-hmm. I also think that that could be an intentional uh, point from the writers because they, the writers may have been trying to say that no matter what, the system is the system and these are politicians. Yeah. And they're going to look out for number one no matter what. But the interesting thing is, and this is a very important point, and I could be wrong, and I hope I hope that I am, because I'd rather have an explanation for it than not. And if you if you find something in the lore, if you're listening to this and you find something in the lore where you can prove me wrong, please let me know. Because I do I, I was looking far and wide for this today, but I couldn't find it. We don't know the process from which counselors are chosen. We only know how Shepard chooses Anderson or Udina, but that's like an, you know, uh, like an extraordinary circumstance. Mm-hmm. Sovereign invades and blows up half the Citadel. Right. That's, that's uh, not the normal occurrence. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's um, we don't we don't really have an idea of the exact process, which in my mind sheds a lot of doubt about how those counselors got there. You know, how corrupt are they? What kind of uh, deals did they make? Do they prescribe to the old adage that politics is a whore's game? I don't know. (laughs) Right. So, okay. So you did mention humanity gets a spot on the council, but you didn't mention a human counselor. Mm, Very astute. Yes, Mm -hmm. I did. I did not. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's right. That's because as we wrap up this first year of the lore cast, we are going to transition more toward episodes covering individual characters and both choices for those counselors, Anderson and Udina should certainly get their own episodes. Nice. So what does that mean for next week? So next week, that means that we're going to be covering Donnell Udina. And if that episode's end, I haven't, I haven't really looked at how much prep I'm going to need for that episode. If it ends up being a two-parter, it ends up being a two-parter just on Udina. Uh, and if not, then I'm going to try and make it Udina plus maybe another topic that could be related or unrelated or scientific one. We'll yeah, see. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Awesome. Well, this has been super cool, man. Congrats to wrapping up a year. And thank you to all of our listeners for sticking this out. If you've, if you've listened to all the episodes over this last year, thank you for being here. Thank you for hanging out with us. We really do appreciate you listening. It, this is a lot of work to put together, um, you know, uh, doing the research on the research side. Sam's obviously the research side of this on the production side and both of us, you know, getting this out there, sharing it, posting stuff, you know, putting all the work together. Um, thank you for just being here and being a part of this. We really do appreciate you guys and are glad that you're here and nerding out about awesome things with us thank you for being part of this community and sam do you have anything else you want to share before we go uh well yeah i just want to say that it's 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 been an amazing year uh and you know i can't think of any other fandom i'd rather do this with you know you all are amazing uh you've gotten me through some very personally some personally some very tough times you know i've spoken a little bit uh openly about it in private channels but when i first moved to portland it was not easy going three months without finding a job and i don't even want to imagine what my life would be like if i didn't have this light at the end of every day you know uh this community that has really uh rallied around and given you know my days a purpose even when they were pretty dark so 
yeah, I, I hope everyone that listens to this podcast knows what a big deal it is to me uh, that you're all here. And uh, this year has been amazing. And here's to many more. Well, and that's awesome. If you want to follow me on Twitch at N7Legend, same <laughs> with Twitter. Yeah, dude. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for being here, everybody. And um, of course, all my stuff's at robotsradio.net. And of course, you can always tune in and join us on Monday nights at the uh, Robots Radio channels on Twitch and on YouTube. And of course, there's also where I stream my other stuff. You're welcome to join me there and check out any of our shows and the rest of the community. Also, there are lots of shows on Robots Radio, all of our Rocket Club shows, the shows that I help mentor and get their other their other podcasts up and going. Lots of great creators making really cool stuff. So go check out their stuff. And if you're interested in starting your own show, check out the website, robotsradio.net. Always happy to work with new podcasters, new creators, and help you guys get your shows off the ground, making your your shows and helping you create awesome stuff. Um, I love working with our community and, and those of you who want to make things. So uh, thanks for being here, everyone. And we will be back next week to talk about some new stuff and start, start off on year two. It's going to be awesome. So we'll see you guys then. Until then, just have an awesome week and a great weekend. And we'll see you guys later. Bye, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Mass Effect Lorecast. We'd love to hear your opinion and thoughts on the lore of Mass Effect. Reach out to us on Twitter at Mass Effect Cast or check out the Robots Radio Discord. Also, you can send us an email at MassEffectLorecast at gmail.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.